Hey folks, have you heard of cancer-fighting foods? The American Cancer Society discovered diets rich in fruits and vegetables may actually lower your risk of cancer. Think about that for a second. That's really important. Hopefully, you hear this and run to the store for five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. But if you're like me, you probably don't have the time to do that, right? So maybe you should consider adding Field of Greens to your daily health regimen. Each fruit and veggie in Field of Greens was doctor-selected for studied health benefits. There's a heart health group, lungs, kidneys, and metabolism groups, even healthy weight. What your body needs is in each scoop of delicious Field of Greens. I take it every day. Sometimes I put it in a shake. Sometimes I put it in my egg white omelet in the morning. Field of Greens can help prevent, treat, and cure cancer? No, but it can powerfully help you audit your next checkup. Your doctor will notice your improved health or you're going to get your money back. Here's the most amazing thing about it. I started using Field of Greens a year ago. My cholesterol is down. My blood sugar is down. My weight's down. My health is up. My sleeping patterns are better. My metabolism is up. If you want to experience what I've experienced, go check out Field of Greens. Jump into the ring here. You're going to get an enormous benefit. And it's so simple. Single scoop, a couple of seconds, healthy lifestyle all day long. Now, thanks to our good friends at Brickhouse Nutrition, Field of Greens is going to give you a 15% off discount plus free rush shipping. All you got to do is go to fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS for your discount. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Fieldofgreens.com, promo code JUSTNEWS. Go check it out. Hello, America, and welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News, where today we're going to take you two places. First, a tribute to the late senator, late presidential candidate, late American hero, Bob Dole. I had the pleasure to spend some time with him, cover some of his campaigns, meet him in the Senate. And I'm going to share an anecdote in a second, but we're going to bring in Michael Glasner. Michael Glasner is a unique person in American politics, a very talented political strategist, and one of the few who worked for both Senator Bob Dole during his 96 presidential campaign and Donald Trump's 2016 and 2020 campaigns. Michael Glasner is going to bring some great recollections and some great insights into a man who will be laid to rest this week, uh, lay in state at the Capitol tomorrow, funeral on Friday, state funeral on Friday, a true American hero, born of the greatest generation on the prairies of Kansas, mortal, nearly mortally wounded, grievously wounded in on an Italian battlefield. In fact, he was so badly wounded, they originally left him for dead and then discovered he was still breathing 39 months in a military hospital to recover one whole year in a body cast for him to survive. If that wasn't enough resilience to impress you, he then went on to run for president three times, become one of the longest serving Senate leaders. And Michael Glasner is going to uh, bring us inside that extraordinary man's life, his career, what it was like to work with an American legend, an American hero inside the political system here in Washington. And we're also going to introduce you to two extraordinary men who are on a mission to get a movie made about religious and ethnic persecution around the globe. Yes, Yazidis, Muslims, Uyghurs in China, Christians in Africa. We've seen the headlines of the mainstream media often tries to suppress the magnitude of the hate, the magnitude of persecution, the magnitude of genocide going on, particularly related to the Uyghurs and Christians in Africa. Well, the great filmmaker, Matt Whitworth, is joining us. He's got a great new project he's trying to crowdfund 
called Exile, the story, six episode stories about persecution, ethnic and religious persecution around the globe. And for the project, he enlisted the help of a former congressman here from Virginia, my home state. And Congressman Tom Garrett joined Matt overseas. They went and shot all the footage at their own expense, at their own elbow grease. And now they're trying to make a worldwide movie we're going to hear what they have to say about persecution, why they're doing it, and how you, if you choose to, you can help make that movie a reality, something traditional Hollywood doesn't have the courage to make. Why? Because the topics are too painful and powerful, and the forces wishing to suppress it, like China on the Uyghurs, too powerful in Hollywood to allow such a movie. That's why independent movie makers like Matt, like what Congressman Tom Garrett are doing, are so important to the new ecosystem we have. All right, we're going to take a quick commercial break. I'm going to come back with Michael Glasner in a second. But before we do, I want to tell you one very special story, one I remember so very well because it was at the very beginning of my journalism career. I was a young pup reporter for the Associated Press. I was working in Wisconsin. It was the summer of 1988. The presidential campaign on the Republican side was winding down. Michael Dukakis had all but secured the Democratic nomination. And uh, George H.W. Bush was about to secure the nomination for uh, the Republican side. He, of course, would go on to be the successor to Ronald Reagan and the 41st president of the United States. But at the end, Bob Dole, who had been one of George Bush's primary challengers, was still staying in the race. He was out of money. He had real no chance left to win. And I was a 21-year-old reporter, the young kid, so I was given the job of following Bob Dole on his trip through Wisconsin and Iowa as he was campaigning. And uh, Bob Dole, the campaign was so broke it had lost its press plane, wasn't bringing reporters with it anymore. He was flying in a small jet uh, to a series of events. And I got up at four or five in the morning, Wisconsin time, and I drove under his jet everywhere he went. I drove my car to cover him. And uh, so I remember going out, man, I don't remember all the places, Milwaukee, Madison, Eau Claire. At the end of the day, I believe he landed somewhere near La Crosse, Wisconsin, on the western side of uh, Wisconsin. And I was exhausted. I probably had driven 15, 16 hours to cover three or four events. But, you know, the AP covers candidates till the end. They're usually the last political organization of coverage for political candidates. And um, I got to the same hotel where Bob Dole and his team were congregating for the night. And I went to the restaurant to get a bite to eat because I was famished, hadn't eaten all day. And I was in the restaurant and uh, I saw Bob Dole meeting with his uh, team uh, in a corner table. And um, I was putting a bite of food in my mouth. And one of the Dole aides came over and said, hey, could you come over and see the senator for a second? I said, oh, of course, I would love to. So Bob Dole looked at me and said, hey, kid, have you been following me all day? I said, yes, sir. I've been driving under your plane and trying to cover. I'm working for the Associated Press. My name is John Sum. Oh, yeah, I think I remember you at the Milwaukee event. Uh, hey, 
stick around. You're not going to go to bed yet. He said, no, sir, I'm going to try to get a late dinner here. He said, good, stick around. I'm going to make it worth your while for flying under my plane. So I went back to my table for a few minutes, about 30 minutes, 25 minutes later, right after I'd finished, I think, a hamburger. Of course, I probably had a hamburger back in those days. I can't do that today at 10 o'clock at night now. I wouldn't sleep at all. But back then, I could swallow a hamburger at 10 o'clock and be all right. And I was finishing up, about to pay the waitress uh, uh, the tip. And uh, Senator Dole came over and said, I want to give a good, uh, give you a brief interview, John. I think you'll see some news in it. And so I asked the obvious question, Senator, you're still running, but it seems as though uh, your path to the nomination is nearly precluded. And he said to me, son, uh, I understand that my that the nomination is a foregone conclusion. George H.W. Bush will be the nominee. Uh, and of course, that meant he was stepping out of the race. And I, at one, one o'clock East Coast time, midnight Wisconsin time, got this great story to report that Bob Dole was essentially dropping out of the race and had called the decision or that the nomination was a foregone conclusion, conceding that George H.W. Bush had won. It was a very big scoop for a 21-year-old reporter, but the graciousness, the kindness, the recognition that I was that guy driving under him is the sort of person Bob Dole was. He was a people person. He always believed in public service. He never took himself too seriously. He was a wickedly funny senator. Uh, There was a moment, uh, we were at one of the tuxedo dinners here that, uh, you're forced to go to as a journalist in Washington. Might have been the White House Correspondents' Dinner or the Gridiron Dinner. We were at the reception beforehand, and my wife, Judy, was with me, and Senator Dole and his wonderful wife, Elizabeth Dole, whose heart uh, we're all grieving for. Uh, she lost the beloved husband of her life for so long. They were there, and Bob Dole accidentally stepped back onto Judy's trail of her dress and ripped the dress a little bit. I mean, literally, it made that you know ripping sound and poor judy was like oh and the senator was so mortified and elizabeth was teasing her and um the senator leaned over to my wife and said i am so sorry i guess that's why i always liked miniskirts when i was a young man you couldn't step on them just broke up the entire room with a very funny 1950s joke uh when miniskirts were of course popular uh gracious and funny had some of the greatest quips that you ever heard and also was a man who believed deeply in small government. He did, He feared the growth of federal government that he was watching and always was a small government Republican in word, in action, always dubious of the growing power of the state. I don't think he was very comfortable with the Homeland Security massive government growth that George W. Bush ushered in, uh, though his understanding of the need to fight the war. But... I think there was a lot of concern about that. But there was a great line that he uttered. I just want to remind everybody, I covered the 1996 convention. So eight years later, when he ran again, he won the nomination in 96. Obviously lost to Bill Clinton at the end. But he gave, uh, in his 1996 speech, there was one line that always resonated with me as a reporter because I thought it, it summarized or epitomized the small government the distrust that Bob Dole had in big government. And I'll just read you the line and leave you this thought. We're going to go take that commercial break, come back with Michael Glasner in a second. But Bob Dole said during the acceptance speech in San Diego, 1996, a government that seizes control of the economy for the good of the people ends up seizing control of the people 
for the good of the economy. Just observe that. I'm going to read it one more time. A government that seizes control of the economy for the good of the people ends up seizing control of the people for the good of the economy. We could take that line today and make it relevant today and say a government that seizes control of the healthcare system or the pandemic for the good of the people ends up seizing control of the people for the good of pandemic. Does that sound familiar when you think about your last two years? Bob Dole saw the danger of big government long before most people. And as he is honored in his passing, those words I think you should bring with you and think about uh, these next few days. All right, I didn't do a very good job. Michael Glasner is going to do an extraordinary job of bringing Bob Dole's career and accomplishments to life for you. And then Matt Whitworth and Congressman Tom Garrett to talk about the movie Exile. That one's a tearjerker. Be ready for some emotional roller coasters. We're going to conquer both in just a few minutes right after this commercial break. Hey, folks, have you heard of cancer-fighting foods? The American Cancer Society discovered diets rich in fruits and vegetables may actually lower your risk of cancer. Think about that for a second. That's really important. Hopefully, you hear this and run to the store for five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. But if you're like me, you probably don't have the time to do that, right? So maybe you should consider adding Field of Greens to your daily health regimen. Each fruit and veggie in Field of Greens was doctor-selected for studied health benefits. There's a heart health group, lungs, kidneys, and metabolism groups, even healthy weight. What your body needs is in each scoop of delicious Field of Greens. I take it every day. Sometimes I put it in a shake. Sometimes I put it in my egg white omelet in the morning. Field of Greens can help prevent, treat, and cure cancer? No, but it can powerfully help you audit your next checkup. Your doctor will notice your improved health or you're going to get your money back. Here's the most amazing thing about it. I started using Field of Greens a year ago. My cholesterol is down. My blood sugar is down. My weight's down. My health is up. My sleeping patterns are better. My metabolism is up. If you want to experience what I've experienced, go check out Field of Greens. Jump into the ring here. You're going to get an enormous benefit. And it's so simple. Single scoop, a couple of seconds, healthy lifestyle all day long. Now, thanks to our good friends at Brickhouse Nutrition, Field of Greens is going to give you a 15% off discount plus free rush shipping. All you got to do is go to fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS for your discount. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Fieldofgreens.com, promo code JUSTNEWS. Go check it out. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. As promised, a very special guest, one of the brightest minds in all of politics, and somebody who has a unique connection because he was really the chief strategist for Donald Trump's 2016 and 2020 campaigns, and long before that, was advising Bob Dole all the way back when Bob Dole began running for president, including his 96th presidential campaign. Joining me right now, my good friend, Michael Glasner. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you, John. It's an honor to be on. I'm a big fan. And I'm really grateful for the opportunity to speak to you and your audience. Well, we have an amazing man we're honoring today. And, um, you know, it was one of my first presidential campaigns I got to cover as a young 
reporter uh, back in 1988 uh, and uh, never forgot the graciousness, the, the, the large, you know, he had, when he walked into a room, you, f- you felt him walk in the room. What was it like to advise him, this war hero, this, you know, man of the prairie, he always had common sense. What was it like to be in that inner circle? Well, I appreciate that, John. Yeah, you know, Bob Dole is really one of the great uh, political leaders of the last century. You know, and, you know, in addition to his candidacy, obviously, he was one of the really one of the lions of the Senate. Right. You know, you think about the other great uh, senators from that era, uh, Lyndon Johnson, Everett Dirksen, Mike Mansfield. You know, it's really pretty amazing when you think about a small uh, group of people that came. size. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's really remarkable. So to your question, so I. I'll just a little bit about myself. I grew up in rural Kansas, really had no connection to Bob Dole at all. But uh, he was running for the Senate reelection in 1974. And that was a tough year for Republicans because right. Watergate had occurred. Uh, you know, Nixon got, got reelected strongly in 72, but then Watergate happened. Uh, Senator Dole was a very strong uh, supporter of Nixon, one of his top lieutenants. So the 74 campaign was very close. As a matter of fact, uh, Dole won reelection by less than. Uh, one tenth of one percent. Wow, it's extremely close. That's razor thin. And uh, yeah, so when you think about a state like Kansas, which is very red, it was then, it still is. But I, um, I was eleven years old then, and I was actually an act, uh, worked on his campaign as a volunteer. So I put up signs around my town. Uh, I put bumper stickers on cars of unwitting uh, football fans on Friday night, and uh, was really, you know, that was really my first engagement in politics. So Amazing. since I was a very young boy, I had this dream of uh, being an advisor or somehow working for Bob Dole. So uh, several years later, I was at the University of Kansas, and I was able to get an internship for him in 1985. So I started working for him as an intern. Right the same month, actually, he was elected the majority leader of the Senate. As you know, uh, Reagan uh, swept in 1984. The Republicans took over the Senate. Dole was elected as their leader. So, um, you know, my dream, my childhood dream uh, finally came true through a lot of work and persistence. And so I was able to work for him uh, in various roles from 1985 uh, through the conclusion of his presidential campaign in 1996. So a period of over 12 years. Wow. I really worked very closely to him. In particular, my first job in 86 through 88 uh, was really probably one of the most important ones. And I was his uh, so-called body man, personal aide. So the person that's in that job, as you know, John, really gets very close to the candidate and his family and his inner circle because you're there all the time for everything. And I was, you know, a very young man. I never really traveled outside of Kansas very much. Uh, and so that was really a tremendous experience. As a matter of fact, I was reminiscing with my wife that I had been in two states before that uh, when I started traveling here in, in 1986. And by the fall of 1989, I had been in 50 states with Bob Dole. So it shows you the extent of the travel that occurred and how hard he was working during that period, both to reelect himself to keep the Senate majority. And then, of course, he ran for president in 88, uh, uh, was beat by George Bush in the primaries, but then became a very strong supporter, obviously, of then President Bush when he took office and helped drive many of his uh, great accomplishments. So, you know, it's uh, I went back to Kansas after that campaign and ran his state offices. I was a state director. And I ran his uh, final Senate race in 1992. I was his campaign manager. And, you know, frankly, many of us thought that was sort of the end of the Dole era. Right. Uh, he had run for president twice. You know, we didn't 
really uh, think that he would run again. But at 94, there was another Republican wave, as you know. He was elected Senate Majority Leader again. And it, he you know, quickly became obvious that as the titular head of the Republican Party, that he was the obvious candidate to run again in 96. So he did that, uh, secured the nomination. And uh, I had you know, a senior role in that campaign as well. So it was really a remarkable run, really at the height of Senator Dole's political career. Uh, when he was elected majority leader until the time he was a nominee and then, uh, you know, ran in, against Clinton in 96. So I really, it was an amazing experience. It's really the American dream. You know, obviously Bob Dole personified that throughout his life. But for somebody like me, you know, who had a hard scrabble past in rural Kansas, but had a dream, he helped it make true, come true. So I'm really, you know, uh, grateful for, to him, his family, everything he's done for the country is quite remarkable. It's sort of funny because, you know, at times people look at a guy like uh, Dole, who was in the Senate for a long time, as sort of a dour, um, you know, regal sort of a creature of Washington. He was one of the most wickedly funny people in all of Washington. What was it? Was it what was it like to work with him? And how did he break <laughs> up, break up moments when you needed some levity? You know, you're right. It's really remarkable, his humor. Um, and I would encourage you and others. There's a one particular a uh, clip that I was looking at yesterday, actually, where he appeared on the David Letterman show three days after he lost. Right, so I remember that. It was, and it's some of the greatest comedy you'll ever hear. Like, he's on point. He's obviously extremely sharp. So that was, you know, running for president or being, you know, alongside somebody that's doing that for, you know, we literally, it was over 10 years, you know, we we're trying to achieve the, the Republican nomination he was, and I was there with him. Um, it's a, it's extremely difficult work. We would travel 25, you know, days out of yeah, a month. grueling. You would rarely be home, right? Uh, and you had to deal with all kinds of people. You had to travel you, all the time. You were in strange hotels. So it was a very difficult grind. You know, I barely survived, and I was much younger than him. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, his stamina, you know, consider particularly considering his grievous wounds. Right. You know, he suffered in World War II. It's a remarkable uh, stamina the man had. But, you know, the, the one thing that, to your point, the one thing that did make it uh, tolerable, there, you know, there's a lot of things. You met a lot of people, saw a lot of great things. But the primary thing was really being with him and enjoying his humor. So, you know, in the hardest of days, you're, you know, the lowest you can be. You're, you know, exhausted, uh, haven't showered. And he could he would come out with the funniest one-liners or observations. His dry wit was impeccable, and it really made really made it uh, tolerable. And it made you you know I loved the man from since I was a young boy, but it really made it uh, in that context really made it something that you could uh, enjoy you know the grind uh, because of his great wit, his kindness, uh, and his thoughtfulness towards others. It is, uh, and he was. He was a gracious and kind man. I told a story about me as a young reporter, and uh, Scoopy gave me. He just he he had a goodness about him that you couldn't fake. I mean, obviously you got all the Washington complexities when you're you're a leader, but there there was a, an honesty and a and a a kindness to him that you know we we miss in politics. Say hey, we have so little of it compared to the the era when he was there. Um, he wrote a book of quips, uh, which I, I, I love because it's all these little funny one-liners that he had kind of amassed over the years. And I have a copy of it at home, and I, I often look through it. But he, 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 would, he would find humor, including in himself. He could be the most self-deprecating person. You know, anytime you'd meet him, he'd, he'd poke fun at himself. He didn't take himself too seriously. 
how um, for a man who had so much power and so much profile, how does a guy stay humble like that? You know, I think it's really it's really because of his roots. You know, if you really study Bob Dole's biography, you know uh, the difficulties that he went through growing up in rural Kansas. Right. You know, Russell, Kansas. I've been there many times with him. Uh, is you know, it's not it's a hard scrabble town. You know, it's 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 a hard. It, it was a tough economy, particularly during the depression. Uh, the Dust Bowl, you know, it was very difficult uh, circumstances. Of course. And really, the only way you survive that at any, you know, stage in life is you have to be very persistent and you have to have ambition, right, to, to uh, survive and thrive there. And I think, you know, his family, as a matter of fact, they, they had hard times. I know the, fam, the Dole family residents well. I've been there. You know, it's very modest. And at one point in the family's life, that their economic situation was so difficult that they had to live in the basement and they rented out uh, the upper floor of the house to another family. So you go through, you know, an economic hardship like that. I think it does make you humble and I think it keeps you humble. And what you, you know, the, the difference is you can really identify with people who are struggling. You know, if you're born with the silver spoon in your mouth and everything is, you know, yeah, everything's laid out for you. You really can't understand the difficulties of everyday life for normal Americans. And that's something that, you know, Dole not only grew up in, lived in, you know, lived it, uh, but he never forgot it. And he really, you know, kept that attitude of being, you know, the, the boy that he had been from Russell just throughout the entirety of his life. He never really changed from that. So I think that's really what it is. You know, the other thing that is, you know, a remarkable turning point in his life was in uh, the injuries he suffered uh, yeah. during World War II, right? So they were grievous injuries. He had to spend 39 months in a hospital uh, to recover. A year of that was in a full body cast. And I think that he, you know, he had had ambitions to be a physician that obviously were dashed right. uh, by the nature of the industries, in, I'm saying injuries that he uh, yeah. suffered. So, you know, I think when you have, again, I've never been through something that, you know, horrific and few people have. But I think when you do, it gives you a sense of gratefulness to be alive at all and also to um, to be able to help others like you have been helped. And that, he really demonstrated that throughout his entire life, even till you know, last week, he was uh, demonstrating support for people who were in need or people that had uh, weaknesses or uh, economic, you know, problems he was help, helpful every day like that that was actually his motto was try to do something nice and helpful for someone else every day and that's really something that i try to keep in mind and i know others do as well but that's really his legacy yeah. is just of his kindness and compassion for others which again to your point is not the media didn't want to talk about that you know they didn't want to cover it but that's really who he is it and is was. Yeah, and you're right. He had this, you know, the media didn't always cover him fairly. And uh, you know, way before the Donald Trump era, I think he was one of the guys that really saw how a media can be biased and, and create stereotypes and never look at it. I when you, when you sit back and you write an obit, and I wrote his obit on Sunday morning for us at Just the News, you look back at some of the famous things he said. And one of the things that I always remembered about him and in the conversations I was blessed to have with him, it seemed to be that public service is, was ingrained in him, whether you're a soldier, a senator, a presidential candidate, someone after uh, public life who fought for the World War II mo- uh, memorial and then would go out every day and greet veterans there. Uh, and uh, there was this quote uh, uh, that I just thought summed him up so well. When it's all over, he said, it's not who you were, it's whether you made a difference. He always wanted to make a difference in his career in uh, in Washington, didn't he? 
Yeah, I think that's right. You know, the other thing he absolutely did, and for, you know, a wide variety of people, you know, the one thing that was always a blessing for me was I, you know, I came, although our age difference was, you know, significant, uh, I came from a similar uh, sort of culture in that, uh, you know, very uh, poor uh, rural Kansas, you know, very difficult upbringing. So I, I think, you know, I had that in common with him. And I think that was a significant, you know, factor in our long relationship. But he always kept the people of Kansas in his centrality of his being. Like everything he did and everything that he uh, championed, uh, you know, they had many of the things he did obviously had a global impact, not only in the United States, but, you know, around the world, many things he did, particularly during the Cold War era. Right. But, um, uh, but you know, he, he always, his central thought was, you know, how is this going to affect my constituents and the people I know and love at home? And so I think that centeredness always kept him, uh, his mindset of what can I do that's going to impact, you know, people uh, on a personal level that I'm responsible for representing. So I think that that kind of ties in with what you're saying about, uh, you know, his sense of service, because it really was, he was really acting on behalf of others. You know, he always lived modestly. You know, you don't make, you don't get, unlike uh, some recent uh, office holders that we know of, he did not, you know, get wealthy in office at all. Uh, And so uh, I think he really lived by the, you know, an ethics that are, you know, large part, sadly, of a bygone era. Uh, but I think it really was, you know, purely in service of the, of the, of the public, and I think it really was driven by that, you know, his experience from the war and the immediate post-war period. That because of his, you know, the public's willingness to put their trust in him as an elected official, it gave this, it gave him the ability to be in a circumstance where he could overcome his disabilities, right, and excel. Yeah. Right. And that gave, because of their support, he was really able to become this, you know, major figure uh, in our country because of the support from the public. And he he never forgot that. It's just amazing. I mean, and, and, and I just want to step back for people who don't know this. He was so grievously wounded on the battlefield in Italy that originally they left him for dead. And then they came back and realized he was still alive. And he spent, what, 39 months, I think you said, right, in a hospital. Yeah. He lost the use Correct. of one of his hands mostly for the rest of his life. But it never was an excuse. He, he, uh, it, for him, he just, you know, it did, uh, it, for him, he was grateful that someone spent 39 months healing him and getting him back and yeah. he wanted to give back to the country. Most people might go through that and say, oh my God, I've already given enough to my country. Look, I gave up my right yeah. hand and not him. He, he always wanted to serve. And one of the things that I remember doing an interview just before the 96 convention with him when I was at AP and uh, you know, uh, we lose this because there are a lot of big government Republicans today, certainly since the Bush era. Uh, gr- uh, Republicans have been just as complicitous in growing government. But um, uh, he really believed that smaller government was important, that the bigger government got, the worse the American uh, freedom would be. And I, I remember we, we talked about it, and he must have tested this line out because a few days later he used a line just like this in his speech. But he basically said, a government that seizes control of the economy for the good of people ends up seizing control of the people for the good of economy. It was one of the great lines he used at the San Diego <laughs> Convention. And you know, yeah. I look back now and say, oh my God, we look what happened during COVID. This is exactly what he was talking about. He really believed that smaller government was better, didn't he? Yeah, that's right. As a matter of fact, um, that was, you know, that was one of the great, uh, I believe he shared with Ronald Reagan, right? Yes. I mean, there was nobody who was a stronger 
uh, Reaganites and Bob Dole, and he steered many of his uh, priorities, particularly through the Senate Finance Committee. Uh, Reagan's first area, uh, Reagan, Reagan's first um, tax cuts, uh, right? Yeah, the tax yeah. cuts that went through the Senate was really championed by Dole. So, to your point, like I've actually uh, been looking into this. So, one of the things he talked about in '96, as you know, was the uh, the restoration of the Tenth Amendment. Right. So he really believed that the federal government had grown too big, had usurped the power that belonged to the states. Like he really believed that. He also proposed, you know, it wasn't, it was definitely not fashionable at the time. People talk about it somewhat now, but he wanted to eliminate the Department of Education, HUD, and Commerce. <laughs> I think that was Amazing. part of his platform. Think about that. Um, yeah. I know. He wanted, you know, w- welfare reform was one of his top you know, priorities, which actually got done in the second. Uh, Clinton yeah. administration, and he was a major proponent of the balanced budget amendment. Like that was one of his, you know, the platforms that he had ran on consistently. So, you know, those are all kind of seem like old fashioned ideas now. Uh, but at the time, and, you know, you've seen the exponential growth of government, you know, since that era. Right. But he really was uh, one of the original uh, tax cutters, uh, street government, you know, kind of the Ayn Randian concept that the government has has already reached too far into our lives and has got to be uh, cut back. So, you know, that's, it's, it's interesting. You've been around long enough to see this too, but how these ideas and philosophies and politics can go first full circle. And now, you know, many of these ideas right now, they're back you know, in vote. Yeah. Any candidate could run for president now and use those, what I just listed as yeah. a platform and be considered, you know, right wingers. <laughs> yep. Listen, there's no de- exactly ex- that would exactly be the label. It, uh, federalism is making a comeback, and you know you look at governors like DeSantis and and uh, Abbott and and uh, some of the attorney generals. They're exercising exactly the power given to them in the Tenth Amendment, which is if the federal government isn't explicitly empowered to it. Well, then the states have that right, and you're seeing the the courts are repudiating Joe Biden for exceeding that that big government reach uh, over and over again. And I think Dole's philosophy is just coming back in vogue in the Republican Party in a in a very big way. It's, it's sort of funny that in his passing, that 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 commitment to a smaller government, federalism, states' rights is just beginning to rejuvenate. R- remarkable coincidence that it happened. Now, you talked about how important uh, he was to Ronald Reagan and how allegiant he was to Ronald Reagan, but he also played such an important role. In, in the Republican establishment, embracing that rebel rouser that you then went to work for, Donald Trump, that incredible force <laughs> of nature. But yeah. Bob Dole was the first and maybe the only true elder statesman of the party to realize that Donald Trump was about to do something uh, remarkable. What was that like to see your old boss endorse your future boss? Well, you know, it's interesting. I've been, you know, I stayed in close contact with him, you know, for virtually the entire you know, time we were associated together, including during the first Trump campaign. So he had uh, endorsed uh, Jeb Bush early on. I think that was, you know, sort of a um, as a tribute to, you know, I'm sorry, Jeb Bush, Jeb Bush's right. father. Right. right. And he and they were closely. They associated. were. So but I think he knew what was going on relatively early, you know, with Trump. Uh, when we would talk about it, he clearly I mean, nobody. There was no clearer political strategist than Bob Dole. And this is leading up to the present, you know, just till his passing. Uh, he was very astute. He paid very close attention to every race. So, you know, as a popu- he had risen out of sort of a prairie populism himself, right, as a candidate for the Senate. 
1968. So he, and, you know, in Congress before that. So he was very finely attuned to sort of the uh, distrust that, you know, particularly rural Americans had for the establishment and for the government. So, and he saw that Trump was capitalizing on that as well. So he really saw the Trump train coming uh, much earlier than almost anyone. So, uh, you know, he, so as you mentioned, he endorsed Trump relatively early. Uh, He was the only former Republican nominee to attend Trump's convention in 2016. The only one. George Bush did not go. John McCain did not go. Mitt Romney did not go. So, you know, when I asked Senator Joel at the time, I said, you know, it's really uh, quite bold of you to be present here. He sat in the family box. Melania Trump recognized him from the stage, right? So he was there in a very prominent way. He sure was. And I said, why, 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 you know, why is it that you're uh, such a strong Trump supporter? And he said, well, I've been a Republican Party man my entire life, and it's very clear that this is who the Republican Party voters want. So that's who I'm for. It wasn't complicated at all, yeah. <laughs> right? And so, you know, every all these other former nominees had, you know, their hundred reasons why yeah. they couldn't. They know, overthought it. Acquiesce. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, for Dole, it was that that's who the party wants. That's who I'm for. It was very straightforward. And I'll say this, too. He never wavered off of that throughout, you know, that Trump's first and second campaigns and administration. He was always resolute in his support for Trump for the same reason. So I think, um, you know, ironically, you talk about the things we talked about, you know, strong defense, uh, a strong borders, uh, strong support for Israel. They had a lot of policy initiatives that they uh, agreed on, you know, 100%. They really did. Yeah. So I don't think it was hard. You know, I don't think it was hard at all for Senator Dole to support Mr. Trump and then President Trump uh, in his campaigns because for those reasons, policy and politics, right, they were aligned on both. So it, it's really no mystery if you know both men. Uh, that they form this, you know, very strong alliance. And I know that President Trump has a, has a very strong uh, affection and, you know, respect uh, for Senator Dolan did throughout yeah. the entire period. You could see that in the statement he issued. And um, yeah, it's funny. They did stand for a lot of the exact same things and they had different styles, but they had the very same principles and values. And uh, that's, that's why right. Amer- I think that's why Americans embrace both so, so well. Yeah. Um, he'll be lying in state, uh, Senator Dole will be lying in state in Thursday, which is extra, the most extraordinary um, honor uh, an American often gets in this world. He also, yeah. I remember a moment of graciousness that I think we sometimes forget, but he received his Medal of Freedom from the man who beat him in the 96 election, Bill Clinton. He could have said, nah, right. let's not do that. It's a little uncomfortable. <laughs> he, put, he could put losses aside. He could put disputes aside uh, for the greater good of his country. And um, as you look back now, is his generation and style of politics gone forever? Or is there a generation that will seize what Bob Dole did and say, you know what, we got to bring that back into America right now? Yeah, I hope that's true. I mean, the, his generation, you know, you mentioned it, they're often called the greatest generation. Um, you know, really the difficulties that the country and that those young men went through, I think is unimaginable, you know, for our current uh, youth. I think they have no idea yeah. you know, the sacrifices that was made by the country and by individuals and, and uh, companies of men and women at that time. So I hope that that's true. I think that they're, you know, they were forged in fire <laughs> And their toughness came from uh, overcoming those difficulties that really don't exist, you know, today at least uh, now. But I do hope that, uh, you know, that the strong principled stands and common 
kindness and decency that he and a lot of his peers, you know, from that area exhibited uh, can come back and can regain popularity for the sake of the country. Uh, all you, you know, you don't have to look far for an example uh, of how to how to behave as a citizen and how to represent and serve your country than Bob Dole did. Yeah, such a great point. And, and what an extraordinary, I mean, you're one of the few people that managed to work for these two giant lions of the Republican, and quite frankly, more, it's, they're bigger than Republicans, they're, they're American uh, icons, and uh, you're, you're one of the few that, that really could experience both, Michael. It's a remarkable thing. Any thoughts as we as we celebrate uh, Senators Dole, any parting thoughts about uh, this moment in history, how Bob Dole might look at where America is at this moment with China, inflation, COVID, all these different challenges. How would Bob Dole go about addressing the America of this moment? Well, you know, I think that when, you know, the, the Senate in particular, so I, you know, I really think of him, obviously he was a candidate for president. He was the party chairman, but really his, you know, his great contribution to our country was really as a legislator. Uh, and much of what he did was, it was not visible. It went on behind the scenes. Uh, you know, he made deals with uh, Democrats for decades, you know, before the C-SPAN era. Right. And they were really able to, you know, to do a lot of great things for the country. So I'm not sure that, you know, bringing tele televising the Senate was such a great idea. Uh, and as you well know, the speed uh, of the modern uh, media uh, also makes it much more difficult, I think, to do deals and to come to agreements and, you know, private, like it really doesn't exist because someone will tweet it, you know, 10 seconds later. So I think that that just technology has made it more challenging. But I think that, you know, ultimately, I think the one thing about, you know, Bob Dole's life and other uh, great Americans of our era is that they, they, they live long enough and they persist long enough to see the pendulum swing back and forth and back and forth, right? The liberalism of the 60s, you know, when he was in the Congress. Uh, and then that was met with the conservatism of the 80s, you know, in the Reagan era, and I think that you'll see, uh, you know, and my hope is that you'll see in the future of the country more of a sort of a balanced approach, uh, less extremism on both, you know, ends of the spectrum and uh, more sensible uh, solutions for the for the challenges our country face. In particular, you mentioned it is, you know, facing China. So, you know, Dole and Reagan, you know, they stood up to the Soviet menace. You know, the Cold War was real. No doubt. And. And they they worked, you know, for decades uh, to, you know, bring the Soviet Union to heel, and they did so successfully. So I think that, you know, obviously we're entering, entering to this era now where China is going to be our biggest challenge. And it already is, and it's going to continue to be. It's really going to take cooperative uh, efforts from all Americans, uh, particularly our political leaderships, to confront, you know, the challenges and the threats of China uh, in order to maintain our, you know, imagine the United States. So I think we can do it. But I think it's going to, you know, take a lot of uh, work uh, together as Americans to to uh, overcome that challenge. Yeah, such a great point. And I think a lot of people would say what you just said from your lips to God's ears, because I think people are craving <laughs> that return to putting America first and putting each other first. And Indeed getting over some of our petty disputes. Michael, it is always a pleasure to talk to you. Your, your strategy, your politics, your reach, the people that you've helped uh, serve this country is just amazing. And we're, we're grateful for your service to the country and uh, for also helping to bring to life uh, the great career of Bob Dole. Really appreciate that today. 
Thank you, John. I'm grateful for the opportunity to do it. Absolutely. It was great. We benefited greatly from it. So thanks. And we'll have you on again soon. Okay. Thank you, John. All right, folks. We're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll come right back after these messages. Hey, folks, if you're a homeowner and you're like me, you want to protect your home, right? But when's the last time you checked on the title to your home? If you never have, listen to this. A new report on homeowners shows we all now have $16 trillion in equity. That's an all-time high in America. That's why you need protection from a scam the FBI calls house stealing. That's when the equity in all of our homes is the target, sadly, of scammers. If nobody's watching the title to your home, these scammers can transfer your title to their name, take out loans, and your equity could be gone. Poof, gone. You have to protect your equity from this despicable crime right now with triple lock protection from my good friends at HomeTitleLock.com. The first step is to check on your home's title to see if it's still in your name. Sign up with your address at HomeTitleLock.com and be sure to use the promo code JUSTNEWS. They're going to send you a complete title scan of your home's title in your first 30 days of triple lock home title protection. That's legendary protection, by the way. It's free. HomeTitleLock.com. Use the promo code JUSTNEWS. One more time. Go to HomeTitleLock.com today and protect your most important asset, the equity in your home. All right, folks, as we draw near to another critical election, it's not only about casting your vote. It's about elevating your voice, making your voice be heard. AMAC is more than just a senior discount organization. They unite like-minded patriots like you and I, committed to preserving our cherished values and actively opposing the leftist agenda that's sweeping across America. Just look at their recent victories. AMAC members helped to push forward an investigation into practices that inflate drug prices. They successfully defeated ranked choice voting in order to protect traditional voting methods, and they also helped block a federal takeover of elections. As AMAC's membership grows, Washington is listening. Every new member strengthens this movement. If you love America, visit AMAC, A-M-A-C slash Just News to become a four-year member for just $30. That's a great discount. AMAC is not only better for America, it's better for you. Membership gives you access to the AMAC magazine, free Social Security and Medicare guidance, money-saving discounts, trusted news, sweepstakes, and so much more. It's a community, not a service. Take advantage of our election year sale. Four years for just $30 at AMAC. By joining over 2 million Americans, they can't ignore your voice in Washington anymore. Join now at AMAC, AMAC.us slash Just News. That's AMAC.us forward slash Just News. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. As promised, two very special guests in one very special project. If you don't know about this project, you need to know about it now. Exile, a six-episode documentary that really exposes just how bad religious and ethnic persecution is around the world. We just had a story today on Just the News talking about the Biden administration's record on human rights and its failure to address persecution in an aggressive way. Well, the next two guests have done it in a cinematic way. They bring to life the anti-Semitism in Europe, the uh, improper and uh, human rights abuses of the Uyghurs in China, and of course, all of the uh, persecution of Christians across Africa. Joining me right now, the great movie maker, Matt Whitworth, and former Congressman Tom Garrett of my home state of Virginia. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank John, you, John, great to be here. Matt, you made TV history a few years ago with the HBO series, The Swamp, one of the most watched and acclaimed political documentaries of the 21st century. 
Why this project? Why do Exile Now at this moment? It's actually a reflection probably of my own ignorance on, on the subject. Um, until I met Tom and, and got to hear his passion about religious persecution around the world, I didn't realize how pervasive and, and widespread it is around the world, right? It's easy to see a headline, eight Christians killed in Africa, right, or an anti-Semitic attack in Europe, and, and to sort of see that headline and assume it's, it's a one-off, right? It's a crazy person. It's, it's just an isolated incident. But then you get into the stories and, and some of these studies that have came out, a U.K. report yeah. in 2019 saying that um, persecution of Christians is approaching genocide levels around the world, right? Thousands killed every year for their faith. One in three living in countries where they face persecution. A million displaced in Southeast Asia. A million people in concentration camps in China. And you realize this is a global problem. Eighty percent of the world living under the threat of religious persecution, 80% of 7.7 billion people. And so we just knew that uh, these stories were incredible, that there's so many heroes on the ground working in these countries trying to make the situation better. Um, and we knew also the reality of the media landscape. This is not a project no, not. that Hollywood is going to make because they have financial interest in a lot of countries where religious persecution is institutionalized. Yeah. So we said, you know, we had the opportunity to go over to Iraq and Syria and film. I think we made an incredible trailer. And we believe in, you know, the generosity of the American public. We know it's important for them. So we said, let's release this trailer. Let's try to crowdfund the series. And we'll bypass Hollywood, right? We'll bypass Google. Uh, and, and we'll make it independently. And we'll tell these stories and, and highlight this issue. What a, what a moment and what a public service for the world, not just for the United States, but for the world. Uh, Congressman, you uh, made an incredible mark in Congress. Your passion, uh, your relentless focus on religious persecution and ethnic persecution really educated a lot of your colleagues who weren't uh, attuned to just how bad the circumstance is. How gratifying is it to be able to go and tell the story in such a cinemagraphic way now? And what do you hope comes from this? So, John, let me shamelessly say ExileSeries.com. You know, we think, and, and we did another interview where we, I said this, and the guy goes, everybody says that. We think we can change the world, um, and here's why. I just refuse to be cynical enough to believe that the American public would tolerate the horrific mistakes best embodied recently by Afghanistan that we repeatedly make that allow uh, pain and suffering to be perpetuated around the world because these humans are part of our family, right? I'm not some sort of wing nut crazy person. That's just how this is. Yeah. We are who we are by sheer luck. One in 26 odds of being born in this country, one in 26. So we're all lucky. And so if people knew what, what Matt talked about, just how bad it is, six billion people live under the constant threat of religious or ethnic persecution. 6,000, 1,000 people mm. is six billion. And so if we tell these stories and we tell them well, then the American and Western public will demand from their leadership different decisions to drive policy. It won't cost us an extra dime. It's not boots on the ground. It's simply the idea that we say to the people with whom we interact, we won't do business with you. We won't do economic or security business with you if you're, if you're, if you're throwing your homosexuals off rooftops, if you're, if you're displacing your, your Rohingya or your Uyghurs are in concentration camps, if you're murdering your Christians wholesale and your Yazidi populations. And, and so the, the paradigm has always been, okay, we're going to figure out the strategic interest. 
and then we're going to put the paramount strategic interest at the top. I get that. That makes sense. The easiest explanation for on a world example is Turkey during the Cold War. We didn't want the Soviet Navy to get out of the Black Sea into the Mediterranean, so we needed Turkey. We needed to control the Bosphorus. We said, Turkey, we want you in NATO. They said, we'd love to be in NATO. You need to turn a blind eye while we persecute our Kurdish population. Right. In 1983, I believe, the Turkish government passed a law that said that Kurds didn't exist, literally. And, and they persecuted and prosecuted offenses against that population. And we turned a blind eye. And so if we just said to Turkey, look, we want to be on your team. We want to do business with you, but you can't kill your minorities. I'll bet you they'd have still been on our team, Right. And, and, and so as soon as the U.S. does that, as soon as the West does that, they, the world won't believe us. Yeah, right, whatever. And, and when, we, when we stay true to our word and our actual values, I hope there are values, then they'll go, oh, they do mean it, and we'll start saving lives. John, the tragedy is we'll never quantify how many people's lives we make better, how many lives we save. Yeah. But we've abandoned the Kurds three times in my lifetime. It's shameful. And what, what we did to the people who bled and sweat and cried next to our sons and daughters in Afghanistan is shameful. So how gratifying is it to be able to do this in a cinematic format? I want to do what God has me on this planet to do. I don't know what that is. I'm not that smart. But I think I can find a higher calling than helping my brothers and sisters who, but for the grace of God, are in circumstances, or, or whose circumstances, but for the grace of God, I would be in. Yeah, no, it, it's so true. And the passion you have comes through each episode of this series and um you know you, you folks if you you gotta go check this out and we're going to give you all the credentials at the end of this podcast how to get there but you get taken in to these refugee camps and you get to hear from the women the children those who were persecuted and one of the ones that really jumped out to me there was a young I, we did a project a couple of years ago i was involved in with uh, yazidi women uh in iraq and their horrific treatment by the islamic state you had one woman that just jumps out when you watch the episode uh, Soad Khalif, I think it is, um, her story. Uh, Congressman, what do you remember about that woman, and why, why is that so such a powerful story for the world to hear? Well, first of all, it's a beautiful young woman, right? And, and I'd say that not sort of from a from a um, aesthetic perspective, but right. she, she exuded this positivity. And so then you learn that she's watched family members be beheaded. Then you learn that she was taken captive. Then she says, I think hyperbolically, I was sold thousands of times. She was sexually tormented in every way imaginable. She tried three times to take her own life. She tried to escape five times. She was beaten senseless repeatedly. She finally gets out and then takes up arms. And I've got tears in my eyes, John, listening to it, to an interpreter. I look at the interpreter. I said, she's a hero. She's a hero. And she looks at the interpreter with tears in her eyes and goes, thank you. Our struggle is to survive. Right. And in that same interview, um, I think there was a question posed, like, what's your hope for the future? And somebody laughed and said, that's such a Western question. Right. Their hope for the future is that they eat tomorrow, that they're not raped tonight, that their family's not murdered in front of their eyes. Mm. And, and I'm going to sit back and get frustrated when I when I get a flat tire. Hello. Right. So um, in, in you again, the, the American public. Right. Our souls, I think, are still good. And when we know these stories, and again, ExileSeries.com, I want to be clear, these things aren't in the can ready to go. We can't, Hollywood won't make this film. This is crowdfunded. Yep. So go and look at the product, and if you like it, support it. But yeah, I think if we tell these stories, that we're going to, you know, governments, John Solomon, are like children. They'll behave as poorly as we allow them to. 
And so if we hold our government to account for our mistakes, we'll stop making them as frequently, I hope. That's my hope for the series. Boy, that would be a blessing for the world. Uh, we have to learn from the mistakes of willful blindness in the past. And on these issues, particularly willful blindness has been for the Western world. Uh, Matt, one of the things that is really uh, fascinating in, in the storylines and, and just in the public knowledge of my own reporting, you, we've talked about the fact that the Kurds have been persecuted themselves, but it was some of the Peshmega Kurds who went out and tried to rescue and protect the Yazidi Christians in Iraq. Um, what uh, this, this cycle of resilience, that even those who've been suppressed have the resilience to go help others who've been, who are being repressed. Uh, it's a remarkable story of resilience. Every one of these characters that you bring to life, you go, my God, I don't think I could have endured what they did and have that resilience. What is that like for a movie maker to capture that and to share that with the world? It's just surreal. It's unlike anything I've filmed before. I'll just set the stage for you. You know, we're, we were embedded with the Peshmerga special forces on the Syrian border. Tom and I, you know, sleeping on concrete floors, days right. on end. And these female soldiers are coming in and they're taking off their body armor and their helmet and they're putting their rifles down and they're talking about, you know, being in combat with the Islamic State. And I, and I said, how old are you? And one girl said, oh, I'm, I'm 20. And the other was 22. Wow. Right? And you compare that to millennials in the U.S. who you know, have a meltdown if somebody offends them, right? It's just, <laughs> it's just unlike yes. any, you know, experience that we have in the United States. And that's why, we, you know, an article doesn't tell this story. We wanted to capture it on film. We want to go to all of these countries because um, there's just so many heroes on the ground trying to make life a little bit better for millions of people. Yeah, no, there's no doubt. Well, you, you have achieved, once again, extraordinary uh, uh, movie-making success. It, it is an incredible experience. It's not a movie. It's an experience, I think, folks, when you go through these series. I, I, Congressman, I'm going to go back to you because you talked about how blessed we are to be in the 126th of the world that um, uh, lives in the United States and enjoys so much freedom. But even in our shores now, we see rises of anti-Semitism, particularly on college campuses. And the great nation and the great generation that went to war to stop the Holocaust, we yawn sometimes now because we're, I mean, we're just too fat and happy. We yawn when we hear about things like the Uyghurs, which we should not be yawning about. We should be outraged. The Yazidis, it was very hard for America to act on the Yazidis. It took months and months under the Obama administration. Um, are you worried that some of these creeping sentiments that lead to this hate elsewhere in the world, uh, we're either becoming numb to it or in some cases even engaging in some of that hate in a, inside our own shores? So so people told Matt and myself, like, well, the American people don't care about foreign policy. And to, to which I respond, the American people care about people, right? And I've been, you know, I've been in horrible circumstances where I've been betrayed by people who you never would imagine would do that. And I could be cynical, but I'm not, right? At the end of the trailer, I say, I don't have fear, I have hope. And that's true. So, you know, a wiser man than me once said, freedom is only ever one generation away from, you know, being extinguished, I paraphrase. Um, and, and so, yes, the United States is, you know, I, I have had personal struggles uh, wherein I had to really sort of step back and assess my own life and who am I. And, and what I've realized is I'm not better than anyone else, but the contrapositive is that, that no one else is better than me. We're all just people, but this country is built on ideas that are really special, right, collectively. If we walk away from those, then yes, this stuff can come home. 
Um, and, and, you know, I represented Charlottesville when the, when the riots occurred. I got people calling me a white supremacist because one of the clowns that playing them shows up in my office. I don't know who he is and get a picture with him. And meanwhile, I've passed a you know bill honoring Barbara Rose Johns, who's one of the greatest heroines of the civil rights movement. Of course. Like when I was in the State House before any of this happened, um, whose story needs to be told because the American Revolution, if properly done, is perpetual. It never ends, right? To form a more perfect union is a perpetual calling. As we turn our back on that, it can come here. And so when you see anti-Semitism, when it becomes okay to blame a, a, a sub-entity of a group for some ill that they're tangentially, perhaps arguably, involved with, and then it's dangerous and it's ominous. But this is the formula, John, right? Hitler's the easiest example that you use. You pick a group that's small enough that it can't defend itself, but big enough that everybody thinks they know somebody from it. You demonize that group to distract the populace from your own failures, from your own inadequacies. And then when you're done with that group, you just pick another group. Well, the, folks, I got news for you. We've worked with Muslims and Yazidis and Christians, and I've worked with Hindus and Sikhs, and, 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 and people are people. And there are really good people from all over the world who have every, much as, every, every bit as much right to live and breathe free without fear as you and I. And that's the premise of this. Again, XLSeries.com. We believe it. We hope people will believe it, John. And, yeah, it can come to America. It's not here yet, uh, but we we got to fight it over there in order to fight it here. Yeah, that is so true. That is that is the, one of the lessons you take away from absorbing this incredible work that you guys have done. Matt, you are creating movies that Hollywood doesn't have the courage to do. Maybe it's because they don't think they can make a big box office hit, though I don't think they make many box office hits these days. Uh, maybe it's because they don't want to take a look at the world as it is now. What gives you the courage and how do you do this? I think people, they hear crowdfunding, okay, if someone is touched by what you two gentlemen have now done, which I am, I'm, I'm just blown away by what you've achieved here. Uh, how does someone get involved in creating this new era of movie making, independent movie making, where truth can become visualized and, and spread to the masses? How do we support this project? How do we support what you guys are doing in general? The, the ask is really simple, right? ExileSeries.com. The trailer is there. It's three minutes long. Watch it. If you like it and it leaves you wanting more, then, then maybe you help us make this series, right? Yeah. Maybe you help us make it a reality. Yeah. In the state it's in now, as you see, you can see some of the best hits of what you've created, right? And now the question is, how do we get that to full, uh, full cinema distribution, full capability? What will it take to be able to hit everybody with the full six uh, episodes? So the, our goal is to raise $2 million, which is a fraction of what this project would cost if Netflix or HBO were, was making it. That's right. Um, and, and, and we think that, uh, you know, our goal with it, um, we want to spread it around the world, right? Which means putting it out on the Internet. We want this to become the most pirated series of all time, right? We want people <laughs> in these countries to be able to access it, right? We want people yeah. in China to be able to access it. Uh, for them to see, look, hey, America cares. Um, and, um, you know, we're, we're trying to help, um, and we want to give a voice to the people on the ground who are working to make a difference. Um, and, and we don't think that there's a, a better way to do so than this series. Yeah, such an important point. And you guys have already put your own sweat equity in it. Like you said, Congressman, you slept on the concrete floors. You went to the most unsafe places to capture the stories. And now it's just a question of getting the final product in the distribution, uh, going, uh, all those former true, members. True story, John. True story, John. They had me in a separate building from Matt, yep. and I they they gave me a bed. <laughs> oh, really? Uh oh. 
<laughs> Whitworth over there on a concrete floor. I find out after the fact, but um, yeah, it was Spartan conditions to be sure. Oh, that's funny. Well, you guys put a lot of sweat equity into this, and and um, you know, you've got members of Congress. We've got the government media institutions that are supposed to educate the world about the values that America is. Our people, and how can people? If, if you're a member of Congress, listen. A lot of members listen to the show. What can they do at this moment, lawmakers, senators, uh, to make sure that every ounce of footage that you guys have makes it to the masses in the world? So uh, like, uh, share on Twitter, on TikTok, on Facebook, right? If you believe in this project, again, this project isn't done. We can't do this without crowdfunding. Hollywood won't make this movie. John, you talked about this with Matt. Because they're afraid of losing the money from the countries who are oppressing their minorities. So members of Congress can like this product, can share this product, can on their political list, right? So they don't get any trouble uh, with with their with their followers on on these platforms and and get it out. You crowdfund successfully by having something. This is a proof of concept what we've done that people believe in and are willing to put their their equity behind, whether it's just by doing a like and a share or whether it's by sending in a check. And I'm and I'm meeting with my former colleagues as often as I can and sort of asking for help. Yeah. Uh, listen, uh, the trailer is just a little bit of the extraordinary movie that is about to be made by these two incredible gentlemen. Folks, go today. Check this out. Get it done. Help raise money. Help spread the word. These stories, these six episodes that are in in, uh, in transit to be made, uh, the world needs to see them. America needs to see them. Uh, it is an extraordinary project. And if you're looking for something to do at the end of the year to make a difference, making a donation, spreading the word, asking for help, uh, it would be a great contribution to all of us as we head into this incredible Christmas season. Uh, Congressman Matt, congratulations for having the courage to even take this on, for going and getting the stories. And now we got to see it through to completion and we're going to make sure that everybody goes out and checks Exile and gets behind this extraordinary movie. John, God bless you, your audience. Thank you so much. We're, we're going to go until we get the job done or until God stops us. That I'm sure of. I know that you are two determined men, so I'm pretty sure this is going to succeed. But we got to all help, and uh, that's what today's about. So thank you. Keep us up to date. We're going to follow back up on this in a few months, uh, a few weeks to see how you're doing and uh, make sure that people don't stop giving until we get to that threshold. Really, really great cause. And uh, Merry Christmas to both of you guys. Merry Merry Christmas, Christmas, John. Thank you. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we're going to wrap things up for the day. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. 
All right, folks, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News. So grateful you can listen. Wow. A lot of great memories of Bob Dole come to mind as I listen to Michael Glasner. So grateful. And we all forget Bob Dole was the one elder statesman that had the courage in 2016 to endorse President Trump. Others sat on their hands and sat on the sidelines. Not Bob Dole, patriot, Republican to the end, uh, and a common sense wise man. You heard Michael Glasser say why Dole did it. He just made a common sense decision in his mind. It was obvious it was his duty to do so. Great words there. And listen, go to the Exile site. Go find a way to appreciate the work Matt and Tom have done. See if you can chip in. See if you can help make that a trailer a movie reality so that the entire world can embrace uh, the truth of anti-Semitism, anti-Christianity, persecution from Africa to the Uyghurs in China. We need to tell the story in a much bigger way. Matt Whitworth is one of the great movie makers in American history. He wants to do this. Obviously, Hollywood doesn't have the courage or interest in exposing China and others. You can make it happen. Make a small donation. Do something to make that movie possible. All right, folks, that wraps it up for the day. Until tomorrow, may God bless you and may God bless this extraordinary country, the United States. Thank you for listening to John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News. Folks, everyone knows the next medical crisis is just around the corner, whether it comes in the form of a pandemic or something much more mundane like a tick bite. You and your family need to be prepared. That's what we learned from this last pandemic, right? That's where the wellness company comes in. You know the wellness company. We have their great doctors like Dr. Peter McCullough on all the time on our shows. The wellness company and their doctors are medical professionals that you can trust. And the new medical emergency kits are the gold standard when it comes to keeping you safe and healthy, and most importantly, prepared. Be ready for anything. This medical emergency kit contains an assortment of life-saving medications, including ivermectin and z The medical emergency kit provides a guidebook to aid in the safe use of all of these life-saving medications. So you know what you're doing. From anthrax to tick bites to COVID and even the bioweapon like the plague, the wellness company's medical emergency kit is exactly what you need to have on hand to be prepared. Rest assured knowing that you have emergency antibiotics, antivirals, and antiparasitics on hand to keep you and your family safe from whatever the globalists throw your way. Go to www.twchealth/justnews today in order. That's twc.health/justnews and use the promo code justnews to save 10%. At Just the News, we break the stories others in the media ignore or are too afraid to tell. We did it on Russia collusion, Hunter Biden, and the security and intelligence failures that preceded January 6th. Our stories have real impact and reach because we stick to the facts. I'm John Solomon. You can help me expand our honest, unvarnished, and unbiased reporting by becoming a premium member at Just the News. You'll get an ad-free experience and exclusive member-only access to events, and you'll be helping us dig up more truth. Join today at justthenews.com slash subscribe.